Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. In every episode, we'll have engaging conversations with WNL's expert faculty, bringing you again to the colonnade, even if you're hundreds of miles away, just like the conversations that happen every day after class here at WNL. You'll hear from your favorite faculty on fascinating topics and meet professors who can introduce you to new worlds and continue your journey of lifelong learning. Our guest today is Associate Professor of Art History, Elliot King. Professor King joined WNL in 2012 and has taught courses such as the business of contemporary art, surrealism, art of the 1960s, American art to 1945, and many more. He focuses his research on surrealism and Salvador Dali, a topic he has studied for over 20 years. His book, Dali, Surrealism, and Cinema, is the most complete survey of Dali's work with film, with many scripts described for the first time in English. He has also curated major exhibitions on surrealist artists, including Dali, Frida Kahlo, and Rene Marguerite. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, I have to share with our listeners that we are not playing a nature soundtrack, but are actually sitting outside uh, a socially distanced way. Um, and it's a gorgeous fall day here in Lexington, so we are, we're really happy to have you with us today. Before we dive into Salvador Dali and the research you've done on his body of work, I'd like you to provide some context. We've all heard the term surrealism before. But I think if you polled everyone listening right now about what it means, they'd each have a different answer. So what is surrealism, and how is surrealist art different from other modern art? So that's a great question to begin with. Most people think of surrealism probably as an art movement, which is actually a very small part of what surrealism was or even is today. Um, surrealism began in around 1922 in Paris. And it was actually a literary movement at the beginning. It was a group of poets, um, people like André Breton, Philippe Soupeau, Louis Aragon, who were formerly Paris Dadaists, but were looking for new ways of creating poetry. And Breton tells the story in 1922 that um, a couple of years earlier, he had uh, begun having a dream. And these poetic words came into his head, and it was as he was falling asleep that he realized that perhaps the subconscious, the dream state, was a way of mining his own creativity. And so uh, he began exploring poetry through that psychoanalytic narrative, and he called that surrealism. He wrote the Surrealist Manifesto in 1924, where he described surrealism, uh, or defined it for the first time, as pure psychic automatism. So it's a strange way of saying it, but thinking automatically, just letting your thoughts go, plumbing the subconscious, letting uh, ideas run outside of any moral aesthetic concerns that might otherwise hinder those. So surrealist art develops a little bit later, actually. Uh, the, the movement, as I say, begins in the early 20s. By 1927, the group is still arguing whether or not there's even such a thing as surrealist art, because art seems to them maybe too predetermined to be as automatic as they'd like their poetry to be. But some artists come in, uh, Andre Masson, uh, Max Ernst, eventually the more dreamlike surrealists like Rene Magritte and Salvador Dali, who have their own approaches to contacting the subconscious. And that gives you sort of the aesthetic of surrealism that ends up becoming the really popular manifestation. So most people, when they think of surrealism now, they think of those more dreamlike surrealists. But that's really just a small part of what surrealism really was. 
Well, as a cultural movement, surrealism dominated the first half of the 20th century. Can we still find influences of surrealism in our modern culture? So surrealism is still very popular, even if it's in a very basic or generalized way. Back in 2016, the word surreal was Webster's word of the year. Um, that uh, And they defined it as being dreamlike, strange, of an out-of-body experience. So people are very aware. I, I Weekly, I read articles that describe something as being surreal, especially these days of uh, everyone being in isolation and, and the situations that we're all in are uh, being called surreal, which is lamentable for the surrealist movement, really. <laughs> uh, but it, it's getting aligned that way. But the idea of what surrealism looks like, that, that dreamlike imagery, is certainly still very much with us. Uh, that kind of imagery was very influential in, in advertising, even in the 30s. Uh, surrealism got co-opted by capitalism very quickly in the 30s. The, the surrealists themselves were very left-wing. Some were some joined the French Communist Party. But uh, at the same time, there were others who were doing window displays. There were fashion designers who saw surrealist imagery and saw that it was popular and started doing fashion designs and uh, you know, all sorts of, of housewares and things with surrealism in mind. So surrealism is probably the first art movement really that, that reaches mass culture in the way that uh, – you know, cubism certainly didn't. Uh, you know, the other movements before that, you, you just didn't have that. But surrealism spread very quickly and was very popular early on. And I think that's still with us, actually. Well, we'll talk about your scholarship on Salvador Dali in just a minute. But first, would you identify a few other surrealist artists, especially those that we might have heard about? Like, was Picasso a surrealist? So Picasso is a really interesting example uh, because he wasn't a surrealist, but the surrealists really liked him. In fact, um, when they were arguing whether or not there was such a thing as surrealist painting, the one thing that they could agree on is if there were surrealist painting in 1928, it would look like Picasso, even though Picasso wasn't himself a surrealist. They, 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 what they saw in Picasso was a very revolutionary style of painting. They said that his eye was painting in what Breton called a savage state, that it was without any sort of, of rules, basically. And so so they liked Picasso a lot, but Picasso wasn't really interested in joining the Surrealist group. The, the Surrealists, unlike other art movements, you know, like Impressionism or such, the Surrealists were really a group of people. They, uh, they were kind of a club. They voted people in. They kicked people out. Really? They all met at the cafe. They, they, it wasn't like anybody could be a surrealist. You, you really kind of had to be accepted as a surrealist. It was, it was more like a reality TV show in some ways. And, <laughs> and almost, every, almost every major surrealist at some point gets kicked out of surrealism, actually. <laughs> um, but, uh, but Picasso never even had an interest in joining the group, and so he never, he never joined. But... Um, but Breton loved his work. Uh, Breton actually helped facilitate the sale of one of Picasso's most famous paintings, um, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, which is in the Museum of Modern Art now. Um, and uh, Breton facilitated the sale of that painting to the fashion designer Jacques Doucet. Um, and so certainly Breton had a great admiration for Picasso, but Picasso really had other bigger fish to fry at the time, really. <laughs> Didn't so. want to be in a club. That's fascinating. Didn't want to be in a club. Wow, no. wow. So we talked about, or you, or you mentioned earlier, a dreamlight state. Um, and, and in my mind, I, it's one of those very strange dreams that you you can't quite explain. Do you think this is why people are drawn to it? I've thought a lot about, actually, why 
certain veristic surrealist paintings like The Persistence of Memory, Dali's painting of the soft clocks uh, at the Museum of Modern Art, you know, why those are such iconic paintings and, and have been since they were first introduced uh, to the United States, uh, you know, why, why people gravitate towards those. And I, and I think it is that it's a, a comfortable mixture of being strange and familiar, um, that it's certainly off enough that it might invoke the experience of a dream, but you can also tell that it's, so we call it in, in quotation marks, modern art. It, it looks like something's happening that isn't just a, a naturalistic image of whatever the thing is. So you can tell something's been warped to it, but not to such a degree that you can't tell what it is anymore. And I think that people find a little bit of a comfort in that, that like they want to understand it. And, uh, and that leads to interpretation too. There are countless interpretations of why those soft clocks are melting. Um, Dali provided a few of his own, but over the years, many art historians, many visitors to MoMA are like, oh, I think that the soft clock means this. I think it's the passage of time. I think it's how time slows down. I think it's the, uh, the modernization of the world. Everyone has their own sort of interpretation of these things. And I think that it's paintings like that, that they, it's like dream symbols. People love this kind of thing because it's sort of open up to a lot of interpretations. And most surrealists won't tell you what their artwork means because for them, allegedly, it's coming from the subconscious and they don't know what it means. And the idea is that if, if they knew what it meant, they wouldn't bother to do it because then it would be deliberate. They, it would be too cognizant. So for them to create something that's really automatic coming from the subconscious, you know, they, they don't have any better clue what it means than the audience would. Well, so then do they listen to people's interpretations, uh, say that, you know, they, if, they, if they can't interpret it, are, are they curious as to what others think? Well, I know in, in, in the case of Dali, I mean, he always was very open to other people's interpretations of his work and said that, uh, like, oh, well, that's a very interesting idea. You know, it, it wasn't one that I thought of. He might say that. He's like, oh, that's, that's not an idea that I thought of, but that's, that's an interesting idea. Um, there was only one case that I can recall off the top of my head where the, um, if you have an image of the persistence of memory sort of in your head, uh, the, the, the soft clock is draped over sort of an amoeba-like figure. And someone interpreted that in an editorial as evidencing Dali's interest in horseback riding because it looked a little bit like a saddle. And Dali did actually respond to that editorial and said, you know, I've never actually been horseback riding. I, I really don't have any particular interest in horses. But that's, again, a very interesting <laughs> suggestion, but wasn't one that I was have really probably thought of myself. So maybe there is a line somewhere if you push it far enough. Right. It sounds like he, he had very diplomatic answers. Right. <laughs> well, I, I should admit to our listeners at this point that I do have an inside scoop. I work with Elliot's wonderful wife, Emily King, in the Office of Lifelong Learning. And she has provided several tidbits of information about you, Elliot, oh, and, <laughs> she and shared that you've been interested in Salvador Dali since your junior year of college. And so now that you're an internationally recognized Dali expert, how did you discover Dali and what drew you to him in the first place? So yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine. It's been so long ago. Um, but uh, so I was a undergraduate at the University of Denver, and I had started out as an international business major, actually, and uh, wasn't really enjoying that. But uh, when I thought about why I had gone into business, a lot of it was because I liked to travel, and actually I liked to go to art museums. <laughs> and so um, I had a very sage 
studio art teacher from high school who recommended, well, why don't you just go into something that would make you go into art museums? And I thought, wow, that's a brilliant idea. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> and so uh, with encouragement of my advisor, I, I took my first art history class and, and really enjoyed it. I felt like I just sort of found my, my subject. I took a class on surrealism from a, uh, a Max Ernst scholar who taught there named Emmy Warlick. And uh, she taught a class, wonderful class on Dada and surrealism. A lot of the class that I teach now on surrealism, some of those assignments are modeled after things that I did as an undergrad. So, um, so that was certainly very influential. But when it came time for me to write a, a thesis, you know, an honors thesis for art history, I had this idea that I'd like to write on Salvador Dali. And, and there were a, f a few things that were contributing to that. One was that I really enjoyed his writing, especially. Um, something that's actually very interesting uh, for where we are now is that when Dali moved from Europe to the United States in 1940, he came straight to Virginia. Really? Yeah, he, uh, he came straight to Virginia. He was uh, staying at Caress Crosby's house in Bowling Green, Virginia, uh, about, I want to say, three hours from here. In, in the rural plains of Virginia. Um, and that's where he wrote his autobiography, The Secret Life of Salvador Dali. So he, he wrote it right here in Virginia. <laughs> and wow. uh, one of the lines that I think of every year is that uh, he said he had never seen such large spiders as he did in Virginia. And, True. and, and every time I see the spiders in Virginia, I think about like oh, that, this, <laughs> that's what Dali was always commenting on <laughs> with, this, with those enormous spiders. I, I had this idea that I really loved his writing. Um, and actually, I think it's a little bit of an acquired taste because not everybody does enjoy his writing. Uh, some people find him very narcissistic, which he, he certainly is. He's, a lot of it is false. Uh, it's a false autobiography. Really? So you have to really kind of parse through. If you're trying to understand the truth, it's very difficult. But he makes a lot of it up. And so you have to kind of go into him knowing that. But I, I, I really liked that. For whatever reason, it just really clicked for me. And so I, I wanted to write on Dali. And... I also thought, in complete honesty, that there would probably be a lot of material out there, so it wouldn't be like the hardest thing to write on. And this is my honest undergraduate self speaking out, because I was the director of Homecoming. I was really busy. <laughs> right, listen up, students. <laughs> yeah, I was really busy, and I was like, where is there a topic that, you know, I'm sure I can go to the, the library and find a bunch of books. <laughs> and... And of course, there are a lot of books on Salvador Dali, but my advisor said, well, why don't you work on later Dali? So Dali's work after 1940. I was like, okay. And to my despair at the time, <laughs> um, most of the books didn't cover Dali after 1940, but he lives until 1989. And there's a lot of work that he did in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s that at this time, so I'm speaking about 1998, that wasn't covered in the books. It was like he, I, I actually, you, one might have thought that he died in 1940 <laughs> um, because those works just weren't considered at all. And there are a lot of reasons for that um, that we can talk more about. But uh, it got me realizing that there's a niche on an artist that I really like and a huge body of work that hadn't been explored. And so that's really what got me into working on Dali is that I, I ended up doing my master's on Dali. I ended up doing my PhD on Dali. And that's been a large part of my scholarship is looking at these years of production that for the longest time weren't really part of the serious consideration of his contributions to art history. So what was it about this period that you were so fascinated with? Well, I think it was really that it had been, I don't want to say it had been overlooked because that would suggest that it was accidental on the part of art history, that people weren't interested in these years of Dali's work. But it had really been certainly neglected and really um, 
marginalized, pushed aside, uh, dismissed, maybe is the best word. And some of the reasons for that, um, Salvador Dali, when he moves to the United States, he's, he's very famous by the time he moves here in 1940. He had been on the cover of Time magazine. The Persistence of Memory was already a very, very famous painting in New York, uh, well, in the United States overall. And um, he was already doing fashion designs with Elsa Schiaparelli. He, he was doing really big things. He was famous, basically. And uh, as you get into priorities in modern art criticism around 1939, 1940, the tide begins to shift towards recognizing avant-garde art as being very different from mass culture. So there's museum-worthy work, and then there's work for the masses. And Dali was in this really, shall we say, uncomfortable space between those two things, that he had pieces at the Museum of Modern Art, but at the same time, he was designing neckties. And the art critics were like, you can't do that. I mean, it's, it's something that actually today, I mean, Takashi Murakami, Damien Hirsch, Jeff Koons, this is a thing today with artists. But to do this in the 1950s was kind of career suicide. and uh, Or cutting edge. Or cutting edge. Exactly. Exactly. It, it makes it makes Dali very avant-garde in a sort of subversive way. And so the fact that he, he said, I'll, I'll design anything people want. I'll put surrealism out there toward, to the masses. That was something that a lot of modern art critics weren't comfortable with. And it was something a lot of surrealists weren't comfortable with either. D Dali got dismissed from the surrealist group in 1939. He was only a surrealist for 10 years. You have to be voted out of the club at some point, right? Right. Isn't and that he what was. you said? Yeah, he, yeah, he was. He, he was kicked out in 39. And after that, his he 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 declares himself the only real surrealist, which is there's a real battle between Dali and the rest of the surrealist group of who gets to call themselves a surrealist and what does it mean to be a surrealist? So that whole narrative I just thought was so interesting. I think that he that, that he would be outside of surrealism, but attacking surrealism from that space that he was very anti-abstract art at a time when abstract art was really the predominant American movement. And, uh, and then just how art history had kind of written him off, even though he was so influential for later artists. He he knew Andy Warhol. Um, he certainly had a profound influence on Jeff Koons later on. So you know, there have been artists who have kind of picked up on some of that celebrity status that Dali cultivated during this time, but it was very controversial when he was doing it. So you talked about how your research focused on Dali's later post-war productions. What are some works from this period that we might recognize? Well, some of the paintings that might be the most popularly recognizable, um, The Sacrament of the Last Supper at the National Gallery might be one of those pieces. Uh, and that's an interesting narrative just in itself, because that's a painting that uh, is very popular amongst the, the public, but um, it's always hung in a very weird place at the National Gallery, because it has a, it has a rule that went with its donation from the person who owned it named Chester Dale. And he specified that it always had to be on view and never be lent. And so- What does that mean? So that means it's, a, it's something that really should never happen <laughs> in, in terms of a, of a gift, because it means that the painting always has to be shown and it can never leave the National Gallery. So if there's a big Dali exhibition, and there've been many, um, I've curated Dali exhibitions, and I've asked for that painting, and they have to say no, because it's in the rules of the National Gallery that Chester Dale said this painting can never lend. It always has to be on view. And that's kind of a curatorial conundrum, because, you know, where do you put it? 
it, maybe it doesn't go exactly where you might want it to be, and it becomes a little bit of a, a pain in the neck pretty quickly after 60 years. And so it's been in uh, in stairwells. It's been in. Um, it's been next to the elevators. It's right. Last time I saw it, it was near the gift shop. It it sh it shows up in just weird places. You have to kind of track down the painting. Um, but it's a very famous painting. It's, it 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 kind of shows though the the attitude towards these later Dali pieces. It's like, well, let's put it near the the elevator shaft. <laughs> I mean, it's, oh it's, my god. Um, you have to find the 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 sacrament of the Last Supper. Other paintings from this period that might be well known. Well, I don't know so much in the United States, but. Uh, the Christ of St. John of the Cross from 1951 is a, uh, is a very famous painting at uh, the uh, Kelvin Grove Museum in Glasgow. And uh, it was voted Scotland's favorite painting a, a number of years in a row. Um, the people love the, the Christ of St. John of the Cross. Um, and, and that brings up something that I think is I think important to think about with these a lot of these later pieces is that after Dali comes to the United States, he writes in his autobiography, at the end of the autobiography, that he's embraced Catholicism. And that's something else that also affects his reputation within modern art, that he's unabashed that he's going to do Catholic painting, which, of course, in 1500 would have been the norm, but in 1950 is actually quite unusual to do religious style works. And, um, and people think they're kind of kitschy, or the people feel like they're... Um, they don't quite understand, is he being sincere? Is he being sarcastic? You know, what are these pieces really about? He, uh, he ends up combining them with images of nuclear physics. And so you have like exploding Madonnas and uh, nuclear Christs. And again, these are actually the pieces I really love. I th they, they, they aren't probably for everybody, but I love this combination of science and religion. That he, he called this nuclear mysticism of the 1950s. And, and I think it's so interesting how he tries to rationalize faith with science. And, he, and he, I feel like he tries really hard. Like he, he's reading scientific journals. He's reading theology. He's doing it in a very odd way or at least materializes in a really strange way with these exploding images that are you know, a Madonna bursting into corpuscles or something. But um, I love this stuff because I feel like there's so much more to it than just the strangeness that you might intuit just looking at the piece on its own. Virtually everyone knows something about Salvador Dali, or at least his iconic mustache, or perhaps his painting, what we talked about earlier, The Persistence of Memory, um, which which I call the melting clocks, but I, I like how you phrased it, the soft soft clock. Oh, that's actually, um, if, I, if you don't mind my interrupting, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, um, they're not melting clocks, actually, they're, 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 because melting would suggest that they were hot and, and they were melting. Um, Dali was actually quite specific that um, that they were naturally soft like a cheese and so it wasn't that they were melt they, they, it wasn't a hard clock that ended up melting it was a naturally soft clock so yes he, he, he's very specific actually about them being soft clocks <laughs> well i remember seeing a clip of his appearance way back when on the ed sullivan show where he shot paint against a canvas and called it an art and to some that might raise questions about the seriousness of his art is this a misconception Dali really liked to toe the line between sort of high art and entertainment. Um, he really saw himself certainly as a serious artist, but also as an entertainer. I mean, he described himself as a clown. He said, you know, I'll be a sublime clown. And uh, he said, you know, Charlie Chaplin is a sublime clown, but he doesn't know how to paint. 
<laughs> but whereas I know how to paint and I can be a clown. So that makes me even better than Charlie Chaplin. So, you know, I think that he was very aware when he was doing these stunts that there was a comedic element to them. I mean, that certainly the mustache is just very funny. I mean, it becomes an iconic part of his his look. But um, but there's certainly a humor to Dali that, that he's very aware of. Um, but he doesn't really play into it. He actually kind of plays the straight man to his own antics a lot of the time. And so he doesn't treat it as humorous. He treats it as very serious whenever he's doing anything. So as an art historian, it's actually quite hard to know where that line is. And I, I think he likes that. I think he likes that it's hard to know if, if he's if he's joking or not, that, that he, he may not know himself if he's joking or not. With that particular Ed Sullivan clip, um, th there's some interesting commentary going on there about modern art at that time. And so you, know, you might compare that to, say, Jackson Pollock, who's laying his canvas out on the on the ground with his, his stick and his can of paint and, and throwing the can the paint out onto the canvas. And of course people were saying, well that's that's art. In in nineteen forty nine, uh, Pollock was in Life magazine as the greatest painter in the United States. And so Dolly hated that kind of painting. Uh, he wrote a book um, in mid nineteen fifties that where he compared Pollock's painting to the indigestion following fish soup. He, and he said, he said Picasso was awful. He said you know, Picasso, you couldn't get worse than Picasso. Uh, Pollock looks like indigestion. Basically, modern art in general was a lot of antics and bad painting. And so he sort of saw himself, he, he called himself the savior of modern art, that I'm going to paint serious Madonnas. I'm going to, I'm going to follow tr the tradition of painting coming from Diego Velasquez and Vermeer. And you know, there, there's a lot of you know, kind of over-the-top discussion about this, but he really positions himself outside of that mode of abstraction. And I think that when he's shooting those paintballs at the canvas and then making an angel out of them, that's a commentary. That's a commentary of like, look how, look what is being considered art and look what I could do with that maybe even better. But he's kind of shining a light on abstract expressionism in a very uh, satirical way. Um, so I, I think that that's actually a big part of his message in the 1950s is that that abstract expressionism had really kind of gotten it wrong. For that reason, he, he likes pop art quite a bit. He, he, he's friends with Warhol, as I, I mentioned. There's a, there's a competition between Dudley and Warhol. But he feels like pop art is so much better than abstract expressionism because at least a soup can looks like a soup can. So he, he has very strong opinions on this kind of thing. <laughs> a soft watch looks like a soft watch and a soup can looks like a soup can. And so you know, we could say that that's tremendously better, according to Dali, than a, a big splatter painting. So Dali lived a, a long, prosperous, and generally quite amazing life, and much of it was in the public eye. He died in 1989. Have you met anyone who knew him personally? I have. I've been fortunate in that respect, because um, I guess I, I, I discovered Dali in, in 98, and so um, there aren't honestly that many people left anymore who... Uh, who were, certainly who were close to Dali or who uh, who knew him. Um, you know, some people who come to mind, uh, I spent a lot of time in France with Robert Descharnes, who uh, was Dali's secretary. Um, secretary is not really the best word for that because he was, he was a collaborator, he was a photographer, a business manager in the 1980s and had a 50-year relationship with Dali and uh, learned a lot from, from Robert. You know, he had wonderful stories about... Uh, about his time with Dali. And, and, and that's what I just love is when you talk to somebody who knew him, 
who will talk about things that aren't in the books. You know, the, the, the art historians will talk about the visuals or the storyline. But when you get people, it's like, oh, I remember when we were at the St. Regis Hotel and Dolly came down the stairs and, you know, there was a... Uh, he wanted he wanted to walk uh, this this isn't a, a Desharn story but it's a, it's it's the kind of thing that happens that uh he he wanted to create fried eggs that he would walk down the streets of Manhattan as as like a, like a poodle um, this is actually a story from another person who knew Dali very very well who was Louis Marquoya and uh, and he helped Dali make these fried eggs that they they were like little hovercrafts and they they walked him through New York and I mean nobody has pictures of this I don't think I mean they this isn't something that would even be in the book but it's interesting it's interesting to to hear somebody remember that um so so Lewis has been a wonderful resource for him he's told me great stories about Dali that are very personal and uh things that I reflect on when I'm trying to understand what Dali is doing. Um, Robert, I mentioned um, Amanda Lear, who was very close to Dali in the 1960s. I've, I've been able to speak with her a couple times, and I interviewed her for my, my book in 2007, and she's great. She's um, uh, a, a performer who's very, still pretty big in Europe, um, but she was very close to Dali in the 1960s. Uh, Joan Vehi was probably the last one that I talked to. He, he, he just passed away this year. He was Dali's carpenter. And um, I met him a couple years ago in Spain. And we talked about the Spanish coastline and, and things that he had done as projects with Dali. And I, I, I love that personal aspect. I mean, when you're working on an artist from the modern period, you know, it's hard to find people who might have those connections with somebody who's as famous as Salvador Dali. But, you know, there are, there are people around still. And, and there's such valuable resources for stories and just beyond that just getting to know the artist beyond the paintings that you see in the museum that these were actually people and uh, it's hard to imagine them as people sometimes but they were you mentioned a handful of people that you have met uh, that also knew dolly did getting to know his personal acquaintances change your perceptions of him or help you teach his work i don't know if they radically changed the way that i thought about dolly but they certainly deepened it um, because he, it, it's just very helpful to talk with somebody who had that firsthand experience with Dali instead of reading about it from somebody else. And, and again, stories will come up or just minor little anecdotes that just really flesh out who Dali was. Um, I mean, I, I've, I spent a lot of time, particularly when in graduate school, trying to understand what Dali was about. And it's, 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 uh, you can only know so much, right? I mean, you, you can't really know what his intentions were. You can you can read about what he said his work would be about, but a lot of it has to be, well, how is it received? How is it in context? You, you can take that pretty far, but then there is a limit to, to how how well you can really know Dali. But um, but I do think that that speaking to people did just give me a feeling of Dali as a person. And I, and I guess that's, for me, valuable. When, when I was in Spain um, a couple years ago, we we asked around, we were trying to find Dali's family house. And um, and there's a museum there that was Dali's house. And, and everybody knows where that is because it has giant eggs on top of it. Everyone everyone <laughs> knows where the Dali house is in Cadiz. But um, we were trying to find his, his father's house and his family house. And um, you know, people didn't really know when we would ask around. And then we we, we asked somebody like, "Oh, I think it's over here." And they showed us. They're like, "Do you want to do you want to meet the people?" And uh, I was like, "Oh, no, that, that, that's okay." I'm like, "No, that's no, fine, it's fine." And uh, you know, they they went and knocked on the door, and this this older woman answered, and they, they explained they're like, "Oh, they're trying to find Dolly's house." And she's like, "Oh, come on in." 
And uh, you know, her husband was sitting there in his underwear and T-shirt, like wondering <laughs> why these Americans have just shown up into his house. But this was the Dolly family house. And the, uh, the woman who had let us in used to be Dolly's sister's housekeeper. Wow. So it's Anna Maria's, Anna Maria was his sister, Anna Maria's housekeeper. And she's like, oh, so this is the window where Dolly painted Anna Maria. This is the little pond where Dolly would go swimming with Federico Garcia Lorca. I, and all of a sudden, just like, wow, this is real, right? I mean, this isn't just a, a painting or an image of things. I mean, you, you go to Catechez and, and I mean, it's the real place. You know, you, you see ants on the ground. You're like, whoa, they're here. <laughs> you know, they, 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 <laughs> they're really they, here. This is the place. <laughs> and, um, and, and so when you actually walk into a place like that house and, and meet the people who can introduce you to that, all of a sudden you really have a tangible feeling of, I mean, an artist who I've studied you know, maybe abstractly, but suddenly that it takes a much more profound significance. Of course, you not only research Dali, you also teach about him. And it must be so gratifying to see students begin to understand and get excited about work that excites you. And you also teach a wide variety of other or art courses as well. And you co-taught the spring term class, The Business of Contemporary Art, a course known to have a wait list. What does this course involve, and why do you think it proved so popular? Well, the spring term course, um, it was conceived by, um, by a business professor, actually, um, an accounting professor who's, who's no longer at the university. Um, she's gone on to different things. But uh, she imagined the course being a business course that involved an art history component. And so she invited me to to be that art history component of, okay, well, this would be a course about the taxation of art. You know, how are, how is art bought? How is it sold? What are the, the financial, uh, repercussions of, of having a multi-million dollar artwork, things like that. And, and she felt like, you know, you know, maybe it would be helpful if the students had some actual background in art history, as opposed to just looking at these as dollars and cents. Right. And so, um, so she invited me to participate and, uh, but the first time we taught it, I think we had 40 people on the wait list. It was huge. And the last time we taught it as well, um, I, I taught it with a finance professor um, most recently. And uh, and again, it was it's a very popular class. What's great about it is that it it has both business students and art history students in it. And they both bring their own perspectives to some of these questions and subjects. Because in art history, we don't tend to talk about how much things are worth. That That's kind of a a non-topic, even though some of these pieces are really valuable. And it's a little bit of the elephant in the room sometimes when you, I mean, if I talk about Jeff Koons, okay, well, what is special about Jeff Koons? Uh, well, we, we can talk about his work in terms of popular culture, the way that he maybe is in a legacy of Marcel Duchamp of taking everyday items and making them into artworks. But a big part of Jeff Koons's reputation is the fact that he fairly recently, uh, had a sculpture sell for $91 million at Christie's. $91 million. $91.1 million. He, he's the most expensive living artist. He's 65. He can make one of those again. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's not like he's an artist who's passed away and their, and their production is limited. And, and people hear these things. They see the headlines of, of the pieces that sell at Christie's and Sotheby's and Phillips and different different auction houses and the prices the Basquiat's are going and, and, and different artists. And like, Who's buying this and, and why are they buying it? And I mean, that's an insane amount of money. I, I started doing the, the calculations, thinking like, so how much actually is $91.1 million? Um, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Yeah. And, and, but somebody bought 
a metal rabbit for, for that price. And uh, and those are the kinds of things that students are actually really kind of curious about. Of like, so who are these people? You know, are they collectors? Why do they, I mean, obviously they're collectors, but why do they why do they buy them? What are some of their motivations? Um, what do they do with them then? Do they keep them in their house and just show them to people? Uh, do they put them into museum collections? Do they lend them to exhibitions? Um, does this impact cultural institutions more generally? Are museums more likely to show certain artists because the public knows that their work is more valuable? But maybe that's at the expense of, um, say, marginalized voices, women, of, uh, women, artists of color who may be less popular but maybe don't bring the admission tickets in. You know, there, there are actually a lot of repercussions for the market and the economics behind art purchasing. And so um, that's, that's really what the class is about. I think that the business students are interested in, well, gosh, why are people investing in art? Because normally art is not a good investment. So why are people looking at it as an investment? And, you know, what could I know about this as a, as a field? Art historians are like, what in the world is this whole money thing about when they haven't really talked much about it in their art history classes? So I think it, it adds something on, on both sides. The, um, the class itself, as I've taught it, um, has a wonderful field trip um, that goes to New York. Um, we, we try to rope in both Philadelphia and New York. But um, we, uh, we visit galleries. We, we have some alumni now who are at auction houses, who are at art fairs, who, you know, some of them have, have done this course and now they're in the art world in New York. And so you know, what a great connection for students who are interested. Like, how do I get jobs in galleries? How can I learn more about the museum world to actually have alumni who, uh, with whom they can connect? And so, um, so when we go up there, we, we try to have a, uh, a little reception so that they can meet other WNL folks who are interested in art, interested in business, uh, meet some collectors who have been very generous with letting us into their homes um, to see pieces that they have. Uh, we, we have alumni and, and friends of the university who have phenomenal world-class collections. And they've been very generous of, of letting the students come in, ask questions, see some of those pieces. And, and, and again, what a great opportunity to not just go to the Met, as, as wonderful as that is, and see these things, but actually like, so ask a collector, so what do you like about this piece? You know, why did you decide to buy this? Well, you know, what was the story behind this? What were the dealers that you worked with? You know, did you have to negotiate something? Like real questions for people. And so um, that's been a, a really great class. It's, I, I, I've learned a lot. Um, each time I teach it, you know, we, we, we meet some of the same people, but some, you know, of course change. And the perspectives on that are, are really interesting. It'll be interesting when I teach it again because um, the pandemic has had a huge impact on the, on the art market. And so a lot of the things that used to be true about the art market actually are no longer true. Um, so the, the importance of certain art fairs, a lot of the art fairs have been canceled now. So we don't have those art fairs that are just part of the storyline of how things are bought and sold. Um, who's doing the buying, why they're doing the buying, how museums are navigating. A lot of the museums have been closed. You know, a lot of exhibitions have been pushed down. Um, lots of uh, staff members at MoMA was forced to let go uh, most of its education department. I think all of their education department from MoMA. Um, yeah, so, so I mean, the museums are really struggling right now. And you, know, you think about how many people are employed by that. I mean, art is a multi-billion dollar industry. And a lot of people are connected to that. And, and so you know, it, it's, it seems like maybe kind of a superficial thing. It's like, oh, people are just buying paintings. But so many people are involved in that in one way or another. And, um, 
And as I say, when we think about what the business of contemporary art, I'll teach that again in two years, and I have no idea what that class will look like in two years. Um, if I taught it now, it would look really different. One other thing about the, the business of contemporary art class that is very important is that um, one of the assignments that we've had is uh, a museum pitch. And so we have the museums at WNL, which actively collect artworks. And um, we had a, uh, an alumnus, John Pointer, who was very generous with the university. And he and his wife, Nancy, purchased a number of pieces, um, particularly hard edge abstraction pieces uh, that uh, are now part of the university's collection. And Dr. Pointer uh, loved this, this class of, of the business of contemporary art. And uh, when we first set it up, he uh, was amenable to hearing the students' recommendations for artworks that he would consider purchasing for WNL's collection. And so this became an assignment where the students would go out and contact galleries in New York, think about working with museums at WNL, what artists are needed in our collection. So maybe women artists, artists of color, uh, artworks that could be useful didactically. So not just because they're expensive or interesting, but, but pieces we can really use. That, that was the, the, the push of it. It was like, you know, what are some things we could really use at WNL? And the students would look for artworks and do presentations and send this off to Dr. Pointer. And, um, and he took it in advisement. He, uh, you know, he, he was very independent in terms of the way that he bought things, but he was really interested in what the students liked. And he might say, well, uh, the first year I taught it, the, the students wanted a Gene Davis painting. You know, Gene Davis was part of the Washington, D.C. color school. And uh, they found a Gene Davis painting, and you know, I sent this off this packet of presentations off to Dr. Pointer and his wife. And uh, you know, a couple of months went by, and I didn't really know what would happen. And then he emailed me and uh, said, so I found some different Gene Davises. Which one do you think the university would like? And... Um, I mean, these are not inexpensive artworks by any measure, but uh, we have a Gene Davis now at, in Wilson Hall because of, of Dr. Pointer and because of this class. And uh, a number of artworks have entered the collection through that fund. Um, Dr. Pointer very sadly passed away recently. Um, his wife, Nancy, is, is continuing this tradition. And so there is a Pointer fund that when we teach this class will be there for purchasing artworks. And so the students do have a say in the direction and the way that our university collection is building. What an experience for the students. It's really great. And one of the really important things about it is that it's real. Because if I just told the students, okay, imagine you have X number of thousands of dollars to, to purchase an artwork. You know, it's like, well, I don't know, maybe I'll buy this Picasso. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of, it's, 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 an, it's, it's an invention. But um, when you say like, okay, so here is this, this amount. You know, we have a budget. What would you really do? And, and you need to go out there. You need to contact galleries and try to find, you know, like, what are the, because we might buy it. You know, it's, it's uh, and the galleries will take you much more seriously. If you, if you call them and say like, hi, I'm a student working on this. Like, is there anything in it for them? But if you say, like, my university is actively acquiring and we're doing an assignment that you know, we're, we're going to be presenting an acquisition pitch, um, our students were able to go into the back rooms of galleries in Chelsea and look at some of the pieces and, and talk with the dealers. I mean, it was real. And, and again, that's such a great personal experience. And that's, I think that's why the, the class is popular. That, that's why they, because uh, they get real world experience from them. So important. 
All right, so I have to go back and ask, what happened to that piece of art? Do you know? The $91 million piece of art. Oh, who bought it and all that? Yeah. I don't know who bought it. Um, we got to see it. Did you? Yeah, and, uh, we, we took the girls to New York, and we went to Christie's because it's fun. Usually, you can go into auction houses. So, you know, Christie's and Sotheby's, um, you don't have to be like a buyer. I mean, they, they have the uh, their pieces on view. It's like it's like the best museum in the world because if they're having a sale, you can just go and look at things. Do you need a ticket or anything? No, not to go look. So you just go walk through the door? Yep. Wow. Usually. Usually you just walk through the door and, um, and you can just walk around. And the great thing about the auction houses is that a lot of these pieces are going to go into private collections. So you may never see them again. Um, this is maybe a one moment where they've surfaced. You get to see the piece and then it goes back into a private collection and it's gone. So um, it's it's a it's a funny thing to go in there because it, it I think it's most intimidating to walk through the door. But once you're in, it's just like walking through a gallery, walking through a museum. People are just looking at things. Um, if you are serious about a work, um, you know, it, it, they will uh, they'll even sometimes take it off the wall for you. Like, like people will come in and like take the painting right off the wall, you know, let you look at the back because people, you know, if you're buying a Monet, you want to see what the whole thing looks like. Um, you know, not every, they, they can tell if some random person is coming in and just like, I want to see that Monet. <laughs> but, um, but they will let you look at the kind of piece, you know, if you think you might want to actually purchase it. So, um, it's a place to go shopping, wow. actually. It's, uh, beautiful works, but it's also a place that people shop. I have to say that I love the title of your current class, Women, Art, and Empowerment. Why do we need a class to talk specifically about women in, in art? Wouldn't they be included in a normal survey of art history class? Well, you would like to hope so, but unfortunately it's not really the case. And that's a, a developing struggle within the discipline of art history and something that I and my colleagues are really invested in working on with our curriculum. Um, we actually were very fortunate this week, in fact, that the Gorilla Girls, uh, the um, artist collective, uh, came and gave a presentation to the student body, that's it, two nights ago. And then yesterday, uh, Frida Kahlo from the Gorilla Girls actually Skype, uh, zoomed into my uh, my Women, Art, and Empowerment seminar. And so they, the students were able to speak with, with one of the Gorilla Girls about some of these issues. And I actually raised this question of, you know, is it a problem to have a class on women in art? Does that marginalize women inappropriately? Because it's, it's something that I think about, you know, should we have a class that specifically is about the subject? And she said, well, as long as they're not in the story, you need to do that. And they're not in the story. And, it, and it's frankly very weird that in art history, they haven't been in the story. Um, to give just a few examples of what that situation actually looks like. It wasn't as though women artists were not there. I mean, women have created art literally since antiquity. Um, and for a long time, they were acknowledged as artists. Even Vasari, uh, writing in the 16th century, acknowledged a handful of women artists uh, when he was writing about artists who were working in, in Renaissance Italy. One of the first art history textbooks was by a woman, Helen Gardner, in, in 1926, and, and she included women like George O'Keefe. Uh, you know, she, she included uh, some women artists, not a ton, but, but some. And then a strange thing happens right in the 1960s. Um, in 1962, H.W. Uh, Jansen publishes uh, a textbook on the history of art that becomes the textbook for 
art history classes for the next 30 years. I mean, Jansen's art history is still in print. And um, there are about 300 illustrations in that first edition of Jansen's art history, and he cut all the women. All the there, women? There are zero women in the first edition of Jansen's art history. Uh, Gombrich wrote uh, a, uh, published a art history textbook round about the same time, also zero women. So it's right around 1960, the women are just taken out. And it's shocking when you when you start actually looking at it, you're like, you know, well, gosh, why aren't we talking about more women artists? And and these different arguments, which are very valid, have come up of like, well, what opportunities do they have? You know, maybe traditionally, do they have access to the academies in the same way? And those are all very true concerns. Um, were they able to study from the nude? This is an art historian named Linda Nochlin talks about that, uh, that women in the academies were disadvantaged because in the 19th century they couldn't study from a nude form because of social constructions. And so that, that's an absolutely legitimate thing. But within the discipline, there were books about women artists that stopped getting published in the middle of the 20th century. And so for the last 50 years, all of these women, who, some of whom were really big, um, Sophonise Banguisola was a... Uh, was it was a court painter. I mean, she was like Titian in a lot of ways. But you know, you're much more likely to hear about Titian than Anguissola. Um, you're much more likely to hear about Courbet than Rose Bonheur. But Rose Bonheur won major prizes at the the Paris Salon. Um, and so it's just a it's a question of who art history has focused on, and why. And so, so this class, women art and empowerment looks at some of these artists and particularly um, how they represent the female body. Because I was trying to make it not just about women and artists. I wanted to do, do kind of a slant. And I thought that images of how women depict women was maybe an interesting way of thinking about it a little bit more with a spin than just saying, well, here are some different women artists. You know, aren't they great? It isn't disappointing that they haven't been there. Um, it's more like, well, what are they doing perhaps that's different from what their male counterparts were doing at the same time? Is there a difference? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, it's um, it raises interesting questions a lot of the time. I mean, I mean, it's one of my favorite classes to teach because I learn so much about it. Um, I, I take a lot of my own art history education for granted. I, I, I went through the path of European modern art. That, that's what I learned and what I have my Ph.D. in. And, and I learned about a lot of male artists. Um, and truthfully, I really hadn't thought a lot about that disparity so much, but teaching this class, I realized like, gosh, well, who do I, who do I teach? Um, I looked at my own final exam for the intro to art history class. And when I first started teaching the class, about 3% of the artists on my final exam were women. And I was like, gosh, that's, that's bad. That I'm, I, that's, that's on me too. <laughs> you know, that's not just like art history as a discipline. That's like, I've made a subconscious choice of what narrative I've decided to tell. And so now I'm up to about 15%, which isn't great, but you know, it, it, it's, it's cognizant. And I think that that's the big difference. This, that's why there's a class about this, is that it's upon us to think about who are we teaching, who are we not teaching, and what impression of the discipline is being encouraged by them. Elliot, you have curated and assisted with a number of exhibitions around the world, which sounds so interesting. In 2010, you guest curated an exhibit, Dali, the late work at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, that drew over 260,000 visitors. The New York Times called it a terrific, even shattering show. 
Your 2013 exhibition, Frida and Diego, Passion, Politics, and Painting, also at the High Museum, had nearly 354,000 visitors. What does it mean when one curates an art exhibition, and how does one go from teaching to curating? So normally, curating is done in-house within a a museum, and and we're speaking here about large exhibitions at the museums like the High Museum. the uh, opportunity that I had was as a as a guest curator, and so they, they brought me in as a, as a specialist in these subjects related to Salvador Dali, Frida Kahlo. I've, I've done another show uh, recently on Rene Magritte. So because of my surrealism expertise, the museum asked me to be sort of the scholarly voice for putting these kinds of shows together. They begin really with an idea and an argument, so it's not so different from writing a paper or presenting a class because you're trying to teach something. I, th- I think that the best exhibitions have an argument to them. And so you're trying to tell something. You're trying to tell a story. You're trying to make a case for something. And maybe not every visitor who goes through gets that, but that's the that's one level where the exhibition is working. So uh, what the curator does, in, in my experience, is uh, come up with the theme of the show. So with Dali the Late Work, it was actually based on my my dissertation and my, my study of, of post-war Salvador Dali and the arguments that I'd made around that. So I had a lot of material <laughs> behind my behind me in terms of what I'd like to present. And then you have to figure out, well, what are the pieces that you'd really like to have? So that's your wish list. And you construct letters that are sent out under the label of the museum to private collections, other museums, uh, et cetera, to, to ask to borrow those artworks. And it's not at all an easy thing to convince people to lend you their artwork when it's a multi-million dollar piece. And particularly when that's a very famous artist, because sometimes if you're borrowing, a, let's say, a Frida Kahlo from a museum, they only have one Frida Kahlo. And it's a tourist attraction in itself. So they don't really want to lend it to somebody else because people will come to their museum and wish that the Frida were on display. So you you have to do a lot of negotiation and you have to convince them that this is a worthy thing for them to lend their painting towards, that you're doing something for the scholarship, you're doing something for the subject that's going to matter. About 50 to 60 percent of the loan requests are turned down. So often you're unsuccessful. Um, but then you get things that you're kind of surprised sometimes you get. And uh, you know, if you kind of shoot for the stars, sometimes you get some really wonderful pieces. And um, so you, you request the pieces. Once you find out what your actual checklist is, you, then you think, well, what are, how are these going to work in terms of the space? You know, What are the arguments that I'm going to make? What kinds of juxtapositions am I going to make? Um, you'll work with designers for the wall color, the lighting, uh, what kind of wall texts are going to be on the, uh, you know, next to the artworks, but also in the room. So people are reading these wall texts, they can get a sense of the story you're trying to tell. So you write those. It's really a full-time job. And then once all of that is installed, then it goes into the marketing of the piece and uh, you know, speaking with the press, uh, going around and talking with um, newspapers, radio, television, et cetera, to, to promote the exhibition. Um, there are a lot of pieces involved. The, the, the exhibitions are really challenging to pull off, but it's it's so wonderful to be in an exhibition that you've curated and, and see people walking through it and talking about the pieces and actually seeing the real thing. I mean, you, you see the images on a PowerPoint, but to actually have the actual painting or sculpture show up, and it's like, well, here it is right on the wall, and this is a thing that 
we've put together um, is just a super rewarding experience. I bet. So once it's done, do you take time to stand in that space alone or reflect upon it? I do. I mean, I'll certainly spend time in the space alone, but I, what I love to do is spend time in the space with other people. I, I love to just walk through and hear what other people are saying as they walk through. And, um, you know, I'm six foot four with bright glasses. And so I'm not the most inconspicuous of people <laughs> if people know what I look like. But um, if I can at all go unnoticed, I'd love to hear, you know, how are people responding to things? And, you know, like and telling stories like, oh, I didn't know that Dolly was kicked out of surrealism in 1939. And when you hear that, you're like, wow, they learned something. And that's yeah. that's great. And people of all ages, too. I love seeing kids go through these exhibitions and, you know, talk to their parents about some of these artworks. It's 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 so neat to see that happening. And then years later, I've had students, particularly from Atlanta, who are like, oh, I saw that Frida Kahlo show. For, you know, students at WNL yeah. was like, oh, I remember that Salvador Dali show. And I mean, that's 10 years ago now, but they still remember it. That and and that's very, very, very rewarding. When you think about the practice of curating art exhibits, how does that inform your teaching? Well, certainly, you know um, what the actual object looks like, which is maybe something you would take for granted. But people often wonder, or maybe they don't even think to ask, how big is this? Sometimes when you're showing an artwork on the screen, it's like, so how big is this actually? Because that's making a really huge difference if it's a painting that's only eight and a half by 11 or a painting that's 17 feet long. That makes a huge difference, but they're all the same size on the screen. I never thought about that before. Yeah. And so um, so if somebody asks me, like, so how big is that actual painting? I'm like, well, it's about and to actually just be able to picture it, right? Like, oh, I've seen it or you know, I've. I, I actually can imagine what it looks like. And I'm like, oh, I've never really thought about it before. Um, so that tangible awareness of the work, I think, is really important. Um, and I think that, you know, again, it, it's not so different from teaching in a lot of ways because you're you're making arguments, you're you're doing research, you're doing teaching, you're you're reaching a much broader public than a lot of academic publications might. I mean, as you said, we have you know, two hundred sixty thousand people go to Dolly the Light work, and um, I'm. I don't know how many people bought my first Dolly and Cinema book, but um, I, I have like five copies myself, and so I'm pretty sure it's not 260,000. <laughs> so I, uh, I I know that I'm just reaching a lot more people, and it has a lot more of an effect. And, and again, that's really exciting for me. Have you been able to see or touch any of your favorite pieces of art during this process? It's really not a good idea to touch them. <laughs> I, 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 figuratively. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. It's, it's, well, it's funny because a lot of – I've known people – who really like to touch artworks. And I'll just say for our podcast audience, don't do that. <laughs> That's, it's a really bad idea. And we were like, oh, I went in and I touched the Van Gogh. I was like, no, don't do that. If everybody um, touches it, yeah, then it, it won't be there for Exactly. Long. The oils on your skin are really bad. Um, and so, uh, yes, I, I have not touched them. Um, in fact, I remember installing the Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera show, and um, one of the owners of one of the Frida pieces wanted to, I, I suggested moving the piece to a different wall. And he said, well, should we move it? And I was like, well, I'm not going to move it. You, know, you have, we have art handlers who do that. And he's like, well, I'll move it. And he just took it right off the wall and carried it across. And it, it's his painting, so he can do that. But there's no way I'm going to carry around a Frida Kahlo. I mean, that, there's, that's crazy. I have seen some paintings that I was so excited to see. Um, there's a 1952 religious painting by Dolly called Assumpta Corpuscularia Lapis Lazulina. It's a long title. Yep. Um, it had been lost since the 1950s, and it ended up being in a private collection in Spain. And through an auction house, we were actually able to get it for my Dolly show in Atlanta. 
And so that painting hadn't shown for like 50 years. And I had only ever seen pictures of it in black and white. And so when that actually came, that was really exciting um, because it's a painting I knew really well. I'd written about it, but I never actually saw it in color. And so when you have some of these dollies that are really marginal, that, that haven't shown, and you, know, you only know a little bit, that one really stands out because that one, when it, when it came out, just blew me away. Do you have a favorite? It changes. It, it, it changes. Um, I, I used to love the, the the Assumption painting, actually, and I still do. Um, I'm really focused right now on the persistence of memory because that's sort of my current research project. And I, it's hard to say that that's my favorite Dolly painting because it's the the cliche Dolly painting in so many ways. But I feel like I've learned a lot about it, and I've been really invested in researching different angles about it. And so right now, it's sort of my research focus on things. So so it. it it hops around, I have to say. But I haven't gotten tired of Dolly, so that's good news. <laughs> that is good news. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you about your life when you're not on campus or curating an exhibit. Uh, just some real quick questions. Sure. Uh, you and Emily have the most adorable twin girls. And during this period oh. of the virus and social distancing, I've missed having them come into our office. They've missed you too. <laughs> oh. What do the four of you like to do for fun? Well, of course, we're, we're at home a lot of the time these days. <laughs> um the girls have recently gotten really into butterfly collecting, which for me is really exciting because I used to collect butterflies when I was little. And, and they, they, they catch them and let them go. But it's, it's so neat for me to see their excitement at catching some of the beautiful butterflies we have in Virginia. Um, and we have routinely big swallowtails and monarchs and things, which are very different from the butterflies I grew up with in Colorado. And so um, I love seeing that excitement. And that's, I'm getting a lot of reward out of that right now, actually. Um, they really like helping with cooking which uh, makes things take a lot longer. But um, but they really enjoy that, which is, which is very sweet. And uh, yeah, we're just really trying to kind of get through things, but but, but spend more time and, and, and valuable time together. That's been the silver lining of the pandemic, I think. Exactly. No, it, it was nice that I was uh, able to spend a lot of time. I was on a, a one-year sabbatical very gratefully last year, and, and that was a a big blessing was being able to spend more time with the girls uh, because usually I'm at work, of course. So uh, yeah, that's been wonderful. What's the best trip you've ever taken and why? I have taken a lot of trips. Um, I, I realized that, that before the pandemic hit, last year I took about 22 trips. Wow. <laughs> um, I don't always travel this much, but I, I do travel a lot. Um, and, and I used to, I did my graduate school in England, and so I used to travel a lot then too. Um, and I'm not saying this just because of uh, the traveler program, but I loved our trip to Egypt last year. Uh, we... Uh, Emily and I accompanied a trip to Egypt last November, and I had always wanted to go to Egypt since I was little. And uh, I really just didn't think that was a dream that would be realized. And uh, that was just a, a wonderful trip. One, because I just, again, didn't imagine how it would ever be feasible, but it was just wonderful. The hotels were, were excellent. They, we were with uh, a group of, of WNL alumni and friends who were just great travel companions. Um, and the organization by uh, by our, our, our folks on the ground there, uh, you know, they, they took us to the monuments when there were fewer crowds, and so you'd walk through temples that were empty. It was amazing. And uh, then you know, five minutes later, a huge group of 100 people would show up as we were as we were leaving. So everything was just so precisely timed, like you really couldn't have planned it better. And so um, that was just a, a wonderful trip. I, I, that, that's something that we're definitely going to savor for a very long time. And um, 
I came back and, and did a, an online degree in Egyptology because I was wanting to know more about Egypt. I was so excited about this. And so I, uh, not a degree, but I did an online class in Egyptology because I wanted to know more about uh, Egyptian gods. Actually, I, I think our girls are going to go as Egyptian gods for Halloween this year. Ah. And so they, they know a lot about Egyptian deities. Um, so yeah, it's it spread through the family. <laughs> All right. So, so I didn't know that you were going to... Um, answer with with Egypt, but Egypt has been a lifelong interest of yours. And I'm going to have to put you on the spot and ask you to share what your nickname was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, la, la. Um, so, so I was born in 1977, and the uh, Treasures of Tutankhamun show was uh, circulating around the, uh, the world. And so when I was born, uh, as I understand the story, on my, my, my bassinet at the hospital, it said Boy King because my last name is King. And so it would be uh, Boy King or Girl Candler or whatever it might be. And so because it was Boy King, um, my grandmother said, uh, oh, it's like King Tut. We should call him Tut. And so up until sort of elementary school, I went as Tut King. And, uh, and so, yeah, there, there's a really – and, and consequently, <laughs> Egypt was like all over my childhood. I mean, we, I, I think it's actually probably my first – Introduction to art history, truthfully, because I, I I learned about all of these artifacts. I saw all of these you know, drawings and paintings and things. Yeah, there, there was a lot of Egypt growing up. <laughs> well, thank you for being a good sport. And sure, ask sure, sure. That question. Uh, only people who have known me a really long time call me that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I promise never to call you. But no, I, that's fine. I, I, there I are people out there, but they're 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 fewer and fewer. So we ask this of most of our guests: What's your favorite restaurant in Lexington, and what's your go-to order? Um. I really like the Southern Inn. Um, I think a go-to order, everything is better after a Sin Manhattan. Um, but uh, I like their fried chicken a lot. Yeah, it, it, That's probably my go-to order yeah. at Southern Inn. I was going to say fried chicken or meatloaf because that seems to be the, the, yeah. the two. The two yeah, are. I'm a big, I, but there, there's a lot of great restaurants in town, but I, I do particularly like Southern Inn. So imagine that you and Dali are out for a drink. <laughs> what would you order? And what do you think he would order? So Dali didn't drink. Um, so, uh, he would have ordered a, a Catalan Vichy water, like a bottled water. That's what he tended to order. He, I mean, he might've gotten a, a hot water and he had a little uh, jar of honey that he, he would pour into the hot water. Uh, Alice Cooper tells the story of seeing Dolly like pour this honey and then he pulled out a pair of scissors and cut the string of honey as it was going through. And, and Alice Cooper was like, this guy's weird. <laughs> and I was like, when you get that reaction from Alice Cooper, you know that it's weird. Yeah, yeah. So he would have had hot water or Vichy Catalan water, I reckon. Um, I would probably have um, some Castillo Perlada pink cava because that's the kind of cava that he would serve to guests at Port Legat where he lived. So it was kind of a pink champagne. One thing I'll just add very quickly, um, which is very funny, is that when I first moved to Lexington, the house cava at the Southern Inn was Casio Perlado. And that is so weird <laughs> because it's, a, it's, it's not at all a, a well-known brand. It's a Catalan Cava. But I, I got here and it was like, this is the same brand of champagne that Dali used to serve. And, and so I, I feel like that must you be a sign meant, of something. You were meant to be here. That's a sign of something, yeah. I tell you. <laughs> so what would you ask him? You know, I, 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 would, I would honestly ask him probably about politics because Dali's politics are really rot, and, and it's something that has been a major issue for his reputation, because after he goes back to Spain in 1947, he is very close with the Franco government. And, uh, and a lot of the, you know, I, I talked about his stance against a, uh, modern art, but you know, a major, major issue was that he uh, was sort of complacent to a Franco dictatorship. In fact, he sort of uh, 
sided up to it, and, and he tried to become an official court painter to Franco. I mean, which is shocking for you know a modern artist to do something like that. And so um, I've always felt like it wasn't really genuine. Like I've always felt that it was sort of, sort of self-serving, which which doesn't make it better necessarily. But I think that it, it it's very easy for people to say like, oh well, Dali was a fascist. That, that that's an argument that comes up a lot. And uh, and I honestly don't think that's true. Um, I think that he was very self-serving. Um, I don't think he cared that much, which is, again, its own problem. But, and, and it's a real position of privilege that he could exist in Spain and paint what he wanted without being harassed. But that's kind of where he was at that time. Um, so I'd like to know more about, like, so what's going on? Like, why are you doing this? Why are you saying these things? Are you just saying these things on, on the radio to get people upset? You know, does it actually help you within Spain to, uh, to have this connection, uh, which... In, in some ways it did at the time. But um, it's something that I've, I've struggled with for years and years, and I, and I don't think I'll ever have an answer because it gets into those intentions that we'll never really know. Last but not least, for all your former students out there who are wondering and may not have had the courage to ask you, where do you get your eyeglasses? Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried about where that question could go. Um, my eyeglasses. So I, I do have a collection of eyeglasses um, that I've, I've had for a number of years. The, the ones that I'm wearing now um, are, are black square frames. I've had these since actually 2004. Uh, so I've had them a long time. I got these in Venice at the Dali Centenary Exhibition. Um, so th uh, there was a little shop called uh, Optica Urbani off the Piazza San Marco. And I really liked their big square frames. And so I ordered several pairs over the years from this little shop in Venice. Um, when I was in Rome a few years ago, I, I was walking by the Colosseum and I saw another pair of glasses in the window that I really liked. And so, um, basically when I travel, when I, when I'm, when I'm traveling around, I, I, I really like walking by optical shots and seeing if there's anything. And then I bring them back and, uh, and I give them to, uh, Dr. Helen Fury. That's my plug. I give them to, uh, uh, Dr. Helen Fury, who very kindly, uh, puts my lenses into them. And uh, yeah, so, so I end up with quite a collection of extravagant frames. <laughs> I have to say that's the first time I've ever heard of an optical shop being also a souvenir shop. So <laughs> Oh, yeah. They make great souvenirs, actually. <laughs> oh, Elliot, this, this has been so much fun. And uh, among the, the leaf blowers and chainsaws and dogs barking, it's... Uh, you can it, tell we're at a, so, a safe distance because yeah, there's a lot going on around uh, here. Yeah, but thank yeah. you for your patience. I appreciate it. And thank you, as always, to you for listening. We hope you've discovered something new. To read more about today's podcast and check out other ways to continue your lifelong learning with WNL, you can head to our website, wlu.edu slash lifelong. You'll also find WNL's faculty reading list, sheltering in place with a few good books, and information on how to join our new WNL book club. We hope you'll join us back here soon. Thanks again. And until then, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.